Hey everyone, welcome to Faith in Capital. I'm your host, Chase Tibbs. Today we're speaking with Amy Fias, and we're going to continue our conversation on El Salvador and the Sal- uh, Salvadoran struggle. Uh, but we're actually going to take a turn. You know, a lot of the conversation on religion within El Salvador, uh, especially leading up to the assassination of Romero and the launch of the Salvadoran Civil War, focuses on Roman Catholicism. But Amy Fias brings in the conversation of, okay, how about evangelicalism? Because evangelicalism increasingly plays a larger and larger, more profound role in Salvadoran politics and the the struggle there and religion in in society in general. So I think Amy was a wonderful person um, to, to to bring on the show, and I learned a lot. I talked with her a lot about what comes out of her article called How I Met My Mother and Billy Graham. We, we also mentioned one of her other articles that she's written. Anyways, Amy's wonderful. I hope you enjoy this conversation. And another thing about evangelicalism that I find so interesting is a lot of the conversation about evangelicalism in the U.S. is about its internal dynamics, how evangelicalism plays within the U.S., but or how it thinks about people beyond the so-called U.S. borders. But I think this conversation brilliantly and very interestingly reveals ways in which evangelicalism was deeply and continues to be tied up with U.S. imperialism and settler colonialism. But maybe more on that in another episode. All right, without further ado, here's my conversation with Amy Fias. All right, so hi, uh, thanks so much for having me on. I'm really excited. Uh, my name is Amy Fias, and currently I'm a PhD candidate in history at UC Santa Barbara. And my research focuses on the modern Middle East, global Christianity, uh, and philanthropy. Increasingly, I'm becoming more interested in the intersections between the Middle East and Latin America. I'm also a freelance writer, and in this capacity, I do write extensively on religion, power, empire, in and across the Middle East, Latin America, and the United States. Um, and I am from DC, live in LA, and I'm an aspiring cat mom. Awesome. Yeah, I grew up with a cat. <laughs> I love cats. And I got my dog now. We're, he's my best bud. <laughs> yeah, I'm a little family. That's cool. But yeah, no, I was really blown away when I first read your, I think the first article I came across of yours was the one that we're about to discuss about how I met my mother and Billy Graham. Really fun title, which we'll dive into. And then you also had another wonderful article article on, I think it was a a Coptic Christian refugee who was at like a right-wing event or something, and he was arrested by his like fellow right-wing religious people um, because they saw him as a terrorist or something like that, right? Yes, at the Museum of the Bible. The Museum of the Bible. <laughs> yeah. So, so you just you've done some really interesting, incredible work, and obviously, you know, you're you're just getting rolling with it. So, I'm looking forward to learning more, and maybe um, in another conversation, I can have you back on, and we can talk about your studies with Christianity and the Middle East. Yeah. Would love that. Cool. Yeah. Well, today, you know, we recently had a conversation on El Salvador. We and we kind of spit out a whole bunch of history that led up to the 1980s and, and, the, and the Civil War. And as you had mentioned in an email to me, you, know, you recognize that largely, 
when it comes to studying religion or the role of religion in El Salvador, a lot of its emphasis on is on Roman Catholicism up and through the Civil War. But comparatively, not as much focus has been put on the role that evangelicalism and evangelical Protestantism, Protestantism more broadly, began to play in the 70s, 80s, and then after the Civil War. So that's what why don't you go ahead and kind of introduce us to that a little bit. Tell us about the transformations that Christianity within El Salvador undergoes throughout the 1970s, 80s, and the Civil War. Yeah, that would be great. And, you know, thanks so much for that introduction to even this topic, because, you know, most people that are familiar with El Salvador probably have a familiarity with, you know, Oscar Romero, probably, uh, if they know anything about the country and, um, you know, his martyrdom and his canonization. And I think that also put, you know, a highlight on Catholicism, not just because of Oscar Romero, but because the region in general is very Catholic, right? And um, I think that leaves out not only evangelicalism as its counterpart, but I think there's this kind of sense as well that evangelicalism is inherently right-wing or that it aligned itself with the political right, uh, which wasn't always the case in the Latin American context and in El Salvador particularly. So I think, um, you know, I really appreciate you bringing that up. In terms of these transformations, um, you know, we know the Catholic story, but that also plays into how evangelicalism is responding and who are the kind of agents and actors during this period. So essentially, even liberation theology, as you had mentioned in your conversation with Vanessa, was a little bit staggered in El Salvador. Um, you know, right, Oscar Romero is initially picked as archbishop, not because he is a proponent of liberation theology, but because, you know, it is believed that he will respect the status quo um, at a time that is becoming very religiously charged. So these conversations affect other religious and other Christian groups across the region. And so this isn't just something that affects the Catholic uh, hierarchy or the clergy or the religious order, but in turn, we see shifts in evangelicalism. And so in that regard, in this period, so during the 70s and 80s, um, it is truly you know, a period where we witness an unprecedented growth and the amount of people who are embracing and calling themselves evangelicos. And I wanna kind of stop here for a moment because evangelicos is almost synonymous with Protestant. Like, I think even in the United States, it's very hard for us to be like, oh, I'm Protestant. I mean, maybe we do, um, but it's very rare to find someone that self-identifies as Protestant. Um, in El Salvador, I think in the region generally, this is very general, but they'll either say I'm Cristiano or I'm Evangelico. And so um, lots of scholars have focused on just the uh, real explosion of various kinds of evangelicos um, and different groups during this period. Um, you do actually have Protestants starting to establish roots in El Salvador very early on um, in during the 19th century. I think it's like 1876 or something like that, because previous to that, there were laws preventing Protestants from proselytizing um, in the region. So that's why that's a part of the Catholic hegemony as well. But 
a lot of these charismatic or Pentecostal groups, which are different, although they do share commonalities with evangelicals, started to come a lot later. Um, so, you know, into, I would say, like 1914, 1920s. And so there's sort of a slower buildup. But it's really in the 70s and 80s where you see this exponential growth to the point where um, by 1986, one fifth of El Salvador's population identifies um, as a kind of evangelico. Um, and so that's just a real uh, you know, dramatic shift. And actually Central America in general, the shift from Catholicism to evangelicalism um, is more drastic in Central America than, than even in parts of South America. And it's hard to imagine like one fifth of an entire population uh, pretty rapidly converting from one kind of Christianity to another. And could you tell us a little bit about what contributed to that, that massive conversion? Yeah. So I think there are, you know, domestic and international components to that transformation. Um, You know, and I will start, you know, anecdotally when my mom and my dad talk about their conversion experiences, that's how they talk about it, first and foremost, right? They don't say, like, I was Roman Catholic and I became, you know, evangelico. They, they literally said, like, conocí al Señor, no, I, I came to know the Lord. You know, it's a born-again pivotal moment where that's narrated as a conversion, as we would talk about conversion here as, like, from Judaism to Christianity or Islam to Judaism. It's, so it's really interesting how folks self-narrate this moment, Um, But it's also something that is very personal. And so, you know, my mom, you know, as she narrates, it came to know the Lord through uh, her stepbrother. And so this was kind of through family connections, through friends, through these youth groups. Um, This was how people, you know, through their communities became gradually more evangelical. Now, a lot of these were, you know, neighborhood-based gatherings, a lot of them, uh, you know, were at crusades. Um, You know, this is a period where we're seeing, you know, obviously a lot of crusades in the U.S. We most associate with Billy Graham. But in, you know, El Salvador during this period, you do have Pentecostal sort of crusades. And so it was very common and and not at all unusual to say you maybe went to a Baptist church um, after you converted, and then you would go to a Pentecostal crusade, and all of these things could kind of coexist at the same time. Um, and that's, I think, the the domestic context. In terms of the international context, there's definitely U.S. interests um, and direct involvement in promoting Protestantism during this period of time. And so that also ramps up in very key and pivotal, important ways. Basically, two of the largest church groups, um, even to the present day, have ties to <laughs> these uh, U.S. evangelicals. So, for instance, the Tabernáculo Bíblico Batista is, you know, one of these kind of spirit churches, uh, evangelical churches. The pastor um, known as you know, Pastor Toby uh, basically got the financial backing from the Christian Broadcasting Network, so CBN, Mm. to get his church off the ground. So, you know, we have that influence. We also have, uh, you know, folks from the moral majority in the 80s, newfound political ascendancy, new political kinds of power 
new access to power in, D- in, in DC who are now funneling money and resources and missionaries and pastors in the region. So mm. it's definitely, you know, I think there's multiple layers to this. And I think you have that domestic context where people have a real heartfelt conviction. And then you have the political dynamics coming from the U.S. wanting to Protestantize the region. Mm. Yeah, there's that external contradiction between the imperialist power and the nation of El Salvador. And then there's also the internal class-like struggle where it is at it is at its peak. The, cl- the class struggle is at a heightened level that it had yet to, to really see where um, the masses of, of mostly peasants and some workers are, are battling it out with um, an incredibly militarized, uh, as we've talked about before, an incredibly powerful and, and just brutal military dictatorship. Yeah, and so I think this this particular moment uh, of El Salvador, it's really interesting that it's not just class in a vulgar sense. Class uh, is always deeply a part of the, the culture and the social uh, side as well. So there's also like religious components to this struggle here. That's really interesting. Uh, so you've kind of already mentioned this, um, but, you know, we've discussed how El Salvador becomes like a, a neo-colony to the U.S. at the beginning of the 20th century and how the Salvadoran semi-feudal oligarchy brutally transitions into a more modern capitalist bourgeoisie throughout the mid and final decades of the same century. So what role does evangelical Protestantism come to play in the neo-colonial situation in El Salvador and in the Civil War in particular? Sure. So, you know, if I'm speaking to, say, the view from the U.S., how do U.S. evangelicals play into fostering this neo-colonial condition? You know, I would definitely say it flourishes, you know, when Reagan, you know, becomes the president, 1980. And this is right when the Salvadorian Civil War uh, takes off. And Reagan really aligns himself with many different interest groups to ensure, you know, again, what you were mentioning about these neo-colonial conditions, because it's economic, it's social, it's political, and the religious component is key to this. So he makes alliances with the moral majority and members of the moral majority, and they in turn, uh, you know, are very interested in having the president's ear and having this kind of, um, you know, political influence. Um, there's also nonprofit, evangelical nonprofit organizations that start to work in the region, uh, such as Open Doors, for instance. They are an organization that was founded during, you know, the Cold War to send Bibles to areas that could not uh, get them. And so Reagan really um, considers, you know, all of these as partners And so he's emboldened, they're emboldened. And I think the tragic part of this is that um, they are directly funding, training, spiritually guiding the Contras. So the right wing, in many cases, uh, deeply militarized. Um, You know, these these are people that have all of the resources and the backing of the United States and Israel. Actually, Israel provided up to 83% of the weapons that were used um, in Central America. So, um, and that, of course, was in part influenced by the U.S., of course. But 
so as you can see, there's deep material impact in this coalition, this this alliance. And then, you know, you have folks like Pat Robertson who, who are actually contributing financial resources, putting millions of dollars from his own ministry into supporting the Contras that he calls God's army. Um, so there's definitely a lot of intersections in terms of U.S. evangelicals. The way it plays out domestically with Salvadorian evangelicals is, um, I think it's slightly different and a little bit more complex. And, you know, maybe we can get into that uh, a little bit later. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. That's great. And so as you're mentioning, right, evangelical leaders such as Moral Majority's Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell Sr., they take up the mantles. They're very well known. And they, they didn't start this, but they just kind of continued the uh, to carry the mantle uh, of U.S. American Christianity, of preventing communism and um, advancing, quote-unquote, religious liberty, um, not just in El Salvador, but throughout the region. And as you had mentioned, Franklin Graham, he was a, a spiritual advisor or like a chaplain to, what was it, a group of torturers or were they the counter-revolutionaries in the Nicaraguan War? Yeah, so he helped train chaplains that supported the Nicaraguan Contras. Yeah, yeah, that's disgusting. Yeah. So, so yeah, you have these really, really powerful um, evangelical uh, people that are on the rise. Robertson, Falwell Sr., the Graham Jr., uh, they're all very politically active. So could you tell us a little bit about um, their anti-communism and share with us some examples as to how they directly involved themselves in the politics and the lives of Salvadorans in particular, but also just, um, as we've mentioned, people throughout the region in Central America? Yeah, absolutely. When, when you talk about Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell, I mean, I think of these two individuals really also on par with like Ronald Reagan in terms of American figures that deeply impacted the outcomes of the civil wars in this region. Um, and, you know, again, it's really alarming to see religious figures playing a role in shaping foreign policy that is inherently very violent. And so what did that look like? Well, I mean, what, what's really interesting is that they're framing their support for the Contras as a fight for religious liberty, which to those of us who think a little bit deeper about this are like, like, you know, this isn't, um, this isn't like going behind the iron curtain and the godless atheistic Soviet union. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, this is, it seems different, right? This is a very Catholic country, but what they meant by that is first off, you know, we've always had a very tenuous relationship with Roman Catholicism, just as a country. The fact that Kennedy being the first president that was Roman Catholic and the fact that it was such a big deal, the fact that even with Biden and the current, you know, dramas with even letting him take communion, for instance, I think really exposes a lot of the fact that we, some people or political figures or especially evangelicals, don't necessarily see them and see Catholics or Catholic leaders as, as Christian um, or as, you know, religious or as, as individuals with, uh, you know, shared moral values, which I think is interesting. But then, of course, you know, they're also saying that if we don't Protestantize, 
that the leftist insurgency in El Salvador is going to create a godless communist state, which at this, which contradicts what's happening in the country because the right wing death squads are targeting Jesuit priests, Jesuit nuns, like Catholic nuns. So that kind of flies in the face of, of the logic of, um, of religious freedom, right? Um, when so many clergy are losing their lives to protect the poor and to protect the marginalized. Um, and I should also emphasize to protect indigenous peoples because different indigenous groups across Central America were targeted specifically and they suffered disproportionately um, during all of these civil wars. And as you know, we are used to seeing, unfortunately, these wars sometimes become pretexts for ethnic cleansing and extermination of indigenous peoples. And so back to your question about, you know, what are the specific, again, material like examples of the kinds of things that Robertson um, and, uh, you know, Fowler will do. You know, again, Robertson himself donated millions uh, through, through his ministry. I don't know if it was directly through the 700 Club, but it was an affiliate. Um, he actually went to Honduras uh, in the mid 80s to give a talk to the Contras. <laughs> so he actually met them, mm -hmm. spoke to them. Um, he also celebrated the exploits of a uh, Guatemalan military officer known as Rios Montt. And Rios Montt is like one of the most notorious men in all of Central America. He became one of the Guatemalan leaders by coup, I think for maybe like a year and a half. And so Robertson was excited because he said, here is the only Protestant leader of mm. a Central American country. Um, but of course, in recent years, Mont actually died in 2018 at the time which he was being tried for crimes against humanity because it was discovered that he was responsible for the military campaigns against uh, the Mayan peoples in Guatemala and was actually given the titled born again butcher. Mm, wow. uh, so yeah, not a good guy. And Robertson was affiliated with all of these individuals and explicitly right wing regimes. Um, and so, you know, it was clear that, you know, when folks talk about the conflicts that happen and the civil war, there's definitely a political component but there's a religious one and one in which you see U.S. evangelicals who are very active um, and very vocal in their support for folks who literally committed genocide. That's really helpful for you to share. And I grew up in white evangelicalism and I grew up uh, being taught that basically nations all across the world, but I'm just thinking in particular Central and South America, that the people there are under just terrible dictators and they're always under the threat of socialism and communism, and that the best thing that we can do is just send white missionaries there to turn them into white U.S. Americans, basically, white U.S. Christian evangelicals. And I think this conversation is really just helping me bring together how directly involved U.S. white evangelicalism was, uh, not just generally in U.S. imperialism abroad, but in this particular civil war, it's really disgusting and brutal. Yeah, so let's go ahead. Billy Graham. Billy Graham is kind of the center of your article. And so in spite of Billy Graham's, you know, significant influence on U.S. Christianity 
and his leadership in the rise of third wave evangelical politics, he is popularly portrayed by liberals or conservatives as kind of like a quiet or, or silent person on political concerns and it kind of suggesting that his faith was beyond his social allegiances, his politics or his economic or capitalist ideologies. Um, but even if one is quiet with their words, we are always loud with our actions. So what role does Billy Graham in particular play in the spread of evangelicalism throughout El Salvador? And consequently, you know, what role does quote unquote America's pastor play in the reproduction of Salvador's neocolonial conditions, contradictions, and relations? Thank you for that question. This is, you know, one of the questions that was at the core of writing this piece was that Billy Graham is a really ubiquitous national figure. And I felt that his international presence, um, his reputation in a global perspective has only been like we only we have only scratched the surface of that, mm. um, you know, and particularly, you know, I found it really interesting that a lot of folks had not written about his impact in Latin America. I mean, we do have a, a few great scholars who are, are having work that's forthcoming on this. I'm very excited uh, for that. David Kirkpatrick is one of them. Um, but Graham was in Central America long before a lot of these other, you know, more visible, more proactive figures. And so I felt that there had been a disconnect because if you look at where he went, tons of people showed up and they were very excited about it. And that also like made me ask a lot of questions about, you know, why are all of these Central Americans like really excited to, you know, uh, meet this televangelist, uh, you know, from from the South, right? It just is was really interesting to me. And um, the more that I learned about the fanfare that he would preach at um, soccer stadiums and at bull rings, and I think part of that draw too was was actually seeing him in those settings as like mm -hmm. maybe a little bit more relatable in that he was willing to be in those spaces as opposed to others. I don't know, this is my own personal speculation, but um, but yeah, so he has this perception of being very non-political. And I will say, I should probably preface this with, I recently watched the uh, PBS Billy Graham documentary. And one of the arguments, the central arguments there actually says that Billy Graham was politically active or more so than people think, but his imbrication with Nixon and the scandal over Nixon basically broke that approach for him, that he, after that, you know, even during the Reagan years, would not publicly endorse, you know, policies or anything. And, you know, was very strategic, even about his forays into Latin America, because, they didn't want him to proselytize or, you know, all of these different uh, dynamics. So I actually find that Billy Graham was an individual who was always politically astute and was always politically aware and more so than he let on. And, you know, this is what I'm hoping scholarship goes into and the conversations that we have amongst all of us um, have about him because I found that, you know, and I've read that in the 60s, you know, he was collaborating with the U.S. State Department to share information on the region. And, the, you know, these were really tense times because, of course, the Cuban Missile Crisis happens, you know, in this decade. 
And so, yeah, the Cold War is getting hot. And the kind of relationship he had with JFK, again, on this line of the godless communist threat coming to our hemisphere, served to, again, bolster those old entitlements of the United States to the entire hemisphere, this renewed Monroe Doctrine. But now there's a new veneer, and that veneer is Protestantism, that we need to keep and endorse and promote Protestantism in the United States. And, you know, I obviously, like, I don't think that Billy Graham was necessarily as uh, cruel, vicious, or um, supporting of bloodthirsty dictators in the region. But in some ways, I, I actually feel the betrayal a little bit more acute because he didn't say anything when all of these things were happening. And sort of the one linchpin that I always come back to is in 18 or in 1981, during the massacre at um, El Mosote in eastern El Salvador, over a thousand um, evangelical indigenous peoples are murdered. Um, and it is to date the largest massacre in, Latin, in modern Latin American history. And even when this happened, even when there was this horrific event and when evangelicals in the country were involved, we didn't hear anything. And we didn't hear anything from Billy Graham. And so that's kind of, when I look at all of that in context, it does feel uh, like a betrayal. And, it, and I, you know, I don't think that he was as quiet or, or as apolitical as he led on or wanted his perception to be seen. Mm, yeah. And your mother has an interesting actual like relationship uh, with, with Billy Graham. So, so on one hand, yeah, what does your mother, you, you've already alluded to this, but what does your mother kind of said about her transition from Roman Catholicism to evangelicalism in the midst of the Salvadoran civil war? It, actually, is that correct? Was it during the civil war or was it before? Or? Yes. During. All right, yeah, and then also, yeah, how did that relationship with someone like Billy Graham, how did that come about? Yeah, so so this is actually the source of the inspiration for this story was that I was also raised evangelical, and my mom had all these pictures of her and Billy Graham, or of just Billy Graham. He would send these, like, postcards for the holidays and stuff, and they would be in the living room, or they would be in the office. They would be in a very prominent area in our home. You know, and I mean, my mom looks beautiful in this picture. You know, it's like she's got this perm going and Billy Graham is very formidable. You know, as, as we all know, he's very tall, very commanding presence. And the more that I reflected on that and over the years at this point, decades that I have reckoned with evangelicalism and what it means to me in my life, I started to see that picture in a different light and I started to ask my mom more questions about, okay, so like, how did you meet Billy Graham? And you know, how uh, did you become evangelical when you were in this deeply Roman Catholic country? And most of her family is still Roman Catholic. So um, the things that I learned from her were firstly, that she did become evangelical as a personal decision. And I think I think there's a lot of things that we can't discount, especially when we come from the US context and we see a lot of evangelical abuse, right? There's a whole movement of rejecting evangelicalism because of 
tons of things, tons of horrible things um, that have happened and their own experiences. But, you know, in this Latin American context where there's so much violence, there's really something comforting in having a personal relationship with God. And that's how she described it, right? You know, I didn't have to go through all these motions or these rites uh, of, of, you know, these sacraments or all of these, you know, all of this inaccessible uh, language or tradition. I could just I could just talk to God. I could just talk to Jesus, right? And I have a relationship with him. And so this is how she narrates her own story. And something that I've learned in my own writing and in the work that I do is to like take what people tell you to be their experiences as as true. But then I started to ask her about Billy Graham. And then this is when I started to become, again, more critical of our position um, and my own relationship to evangelicalism. Which is, um, so she was one of Billy Graham's hairdressers. Uh, She worked in Washington, D.C. There used to be a salon at the Hyatt on Capitol Hill. And so she worked there and, you know, you might imagine a lot of famous, important clientele would come through. And you didn't immediately get to just grab a chair and cut their hair. It was uh, actually my mom's boss recommended her. And the relationship between her and Billy Graham grew to the point where um, at one point he actually wanted to hire her um, to work for him in North Carolina. (laughs) So it was the more that I ask her, the more I'm realizing that their relationship was pretty close. But at the same time, you know, I was reflecting on the kind of relationship they had. And I think about this all the time because most of you know, most immigrants work in service jobs, you know, and the kind of setting that they got to know each other in was this kind of service arrangement. You go, you cut your hair just as you go and you get any, you know, service done. Um, And I started to like think about the politics of that in that intimate setting of, of doing that for someone, but then also in the global setting of there being an inequitable relationship here where my mom had to leave her country and there were horrible things that were happening in her country. And there was something really alarming to me when I thought about Billy Graham and all of his public speeches and, you know, everything that he's ever done. And, you know, he couldn't condemn the violence. He couldn't talk about El Mosote. He couldn't say anything even when, say, Oscar Romero died. I have not found any comments from uh, Billy Graham in this really pivotal moment for global Christianity, if you think about it, right? It was, it was so important. And so, um, so that's how my mom narrated her conversion story. Um, and that's how her relationship developed um, with Billy Graham in the 90s uh, in Washington, D.C., and at the very end of your article, you know, I found it really chilling as you write that, you know, the same hands that once cut the hair and groomed the hands of Billy Graham continue to cut your hair and groom your hands. So how is this process as you write a healing process or a way to start anew for you in this really complex kind of messy uh, situation? I'm really glad you asked this because <laughs> that ending just to share a little bit about my own creative process, that ending uh, of the essay came very late to me, actually after multiple revisions. 
and it was my editor. I have a great, great editor, um, Brett over at the revealer, um, pitch him, read his stuff. <laughs> great. <laughs> um, but he, you know, was like, there needs to be, you need to like kind of marinate on this a little bit more. And so that's what I did. And I, I spent time thinking about this and, um, I actually like Facebook messaged my mom and I had pandemic hair at the time, but I was coming to DC. I'm in DC now here for the summer. And I asked her if she could cut my hair. And my mom has been the main person who's ever cut my hair in my life. She's the only person I trust with my hair. Um, but the more that I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, that relationship is really special and really intimate. And I was just thinking about hypothetical situations, you know, what it must have been like to learn how to cut hair and like what it means to do something that is so intimate and yet regenerative, right? You're giving someone an experience of confidence, of health, of hygiene. And so in writing this piece, I guess I'm really glad that I ended with that, not as like, uh, oh, isn't this so chilly? Like Billy Graham, can't believe it. Same hands as, you know, the hands that are cutting my hair. But I thought about it as more of like the the act of cutting hair is regenerative. And if if it's possible to be, you know, a migrant evangelical woman and to have made it here. And now for me to be here and for us to share in this act, in this ritual of hair cutting together, um, then then surely there is a continued way forward um, in our own respective ways um, because I will, yeah, plot twist. I am not evangelical. My mom is still an evangelical. So mm -hmm. even when there's disagreements, I think that there can be really productive moments that bond you with people. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And I sure hope that there is possibility for regeneration because I mean, we have, you know, we have serious climate disaster. We have um, a U.S. imperial power that is ravaging uh, the planet. Uh, we have colonialism continuing to persist and capitalism absolutely destroying the planet. Anti-blackness is rising to its you know highest heights right now, not only in the U.S. but globally. And we have some serious battles to do. And I, I love that imagery of, of, of regeneration because that's what we need to start doing. We need to start cutting these really dead ends and creating space where new life can start to grow. Well, cool. Amy, this has been really fun. I, I really enjoyed the articles. I'll, I'll post both of them in the, in the show notes, um, but it was also just wonderful to be able to, to speak with you. Likewise, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun and, and really uh, thought-provoking. Mm -hmm.